0: Amen. Thanks, bro. Well, good evening, everybody. It is so good to be here with you. Thank you so much for inviting me to come along. Well, Dave invited me. You just have to put up with what Dave decides. Um, But, yeah, as Dave says, my name's Philip Allen. A bit of background for you. This is my wife, Cara, and my eldest daughter, Alex, that have come with me tonight. I have another uh, two children. One, Chris, is 20, and... Eve is 18. pray for Eve. she's in Lanzarote with her friends for the first time ever away without uh, proper adults they're kinda, they've just turned adults this year and uh, they, they paid for an all-inclusive holiday and up to yesterday, five days in they've eaten in the hotel once so they haven't quite listened to our kind of advice and our guidance. they've slept through every breakfast uh, because they haven't got up in time and kind of thing but hey. They're still alive, so that's the kind of the main thing at the minute. Um, I am a, a pastor at Thriving Life Church in Newton-Ards. Uh, and one of the things that I really want to do tonight, hopefully what I have to say to you, will both challenge you and encourage you, um, especially if you're a part of this church, if you're one of the, the core members, the, the people who are here that have been doing this for a year over and over again. I know some people are here visiting. If you're here, I hope this is helpful to you too. But specifically, God placed on my heart something to bring and to say to you, Foundation Church, as where you are in your journey. Um, because one of, the, one of the privileges I've had in my uh, journey at Thriving Life Church is, I, I like to walk around, by the way, so I may trip over these, so that'll bring entertainment to you as well. Uh, but one of the things that um, in my journey at Thrive and Life Church is I've had the privilege of serving alongside Dave in the, the leadership team there for a number of years and uh, with Marion and Jacob and Jenny and, and uh, Carrie and Paul and a few of you guys. So I kind of feel like I'm with family when I'm here as well. But one of the, the, the great things that I've continued to do after that is I meet with this man. We try to meet every couple of months and have lunch and kind of just support each other and walk as brothers through this journey, whine a bit to each other probably. Um, But the last time that I met with Dave, uh, about six weeks ago, we had lunch, and I came away from it. And this time, I especially came away feeling encouraged and feeling excited by what I heard when Dave just chatted to me about what was on his heart. And What he felt God had been saying to him specifically and the challenge about um, the church and the community that you guys have been placed in and the heart to really reach the most vulnerable, challenged uh, people that are in difficult circumstances and situations and just this rising passion within Dave um, that that is what he believed that God was calling you guys to do as a church. So that excites me hugely, it reminds me of when I started my journey at at TLC, so I came on the staff um, in January 2010, so that's eight years ago, eight and a half years ago that I started working in the church, and um, Thriving Life Church, the story of it is there was about five, there was five people that started the church 13 years ago in January past, on average, we have on a Sunday in newton we have about 850 people come on a Sunday um, to church. Now, I'm not saying that because that's impressive. I'm saying that hopefully to encourage you guys because there is more than five of you here, okay? And I believe that God is in the business of changing lives. Over 60% of the people that are now at our church have come to faith in our church through the ministry of the church. So again, it's that idea of God is changing lives. He is still in the business of transforming lives. And I encourage you guys, because there's more than five of you here, and this is what God can do through a bunch of people whose hearts are turned to him and are prepared to kind of ask the hard questions and do what it is, is his heart. So part of my journey when I started in the first six months of my work was we were we were in a phase maybe similar to where you are at right now, which is um, it's taking all of your effort and all of your resource and all of your time and all of your energy to make Sunday happen. So to put on a Sunday service and make that happen every week, prepare a message and um, all of the and the ministry and the care during the week that was take, that was all the effort and energy. So when I came on the staff, my main role that I was given was to we had always been at the heart was to try and reach our local community try and be a church that was for people that weren't going to other churches we weren't interested in church transfer that wasn't what we were trying to do we were trying to reach those who had given up on church or who had no faith experience at all because we live in a generation where my generation everybody went to sunday school whether they wanted to or not we live in a generation now where we're in the second and third generation families that they have no connection. They have no clue why we go to church every Sunday. It's, not, it's completely irrelevant to them. So I spent a lot of time going and talking to other churches, churches that were doing well by kind of working in their community. And I was looking for like the golden nugget, the thing that if we do this, this is how we're going to reach people for Jesus. And what I discovered was I was asking the wrong question. It wasn't about how do we reach the lost. It was much at a much simpler level than that, was how are we going to connect with the people in our local community first and foremost? Because it's not, so much, it's not our job to reach them and change their hearts. That's God's bit. Our job is to connect with them, is to live, to be as part of their lives. And so often in the church, we can become disconnected from what's going on in our local communities. So that was the question that I started to ask. It's and even more important than that, and this is the kind of challenge and the question I want to ask Foundation tonight is, when the people in your community connect with, with Foundation Church, who are they going to connect with? What, who are they going to meet? when they meet someone from Foundation Church? What's the heart of that person going to be? What's their experience going to be? And I want to look at Luke 15. And I think God has given me something that um, I think challenges us as those that are within the church on this. Because here's the truth. Long before people in our communities meet God, they're going to meet one of us. And what they experience when they meet us will have a direct impact of whether they ever get to meet the Father or not. So there's a lot riding on this. There's a lot riding on us and our heart and how we reflect God. Because when Jesus came to, came to earth, he was the perfect perfect reflection of who the Father was in human form. Okay, now I get it, we're not Christ. But as followers of Jesus, Our mission, our role is to, as best as we can, through the transformation and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in us, we have to reflect the heart of the Father to every person that we meet. Just like Christ was. But Christ got a lot of stick because he spent a lot of time with people that were not like him. There were people that were not normally in church, they were not the religious type, they were people who were outsiders. They were people whose sexuality didn't add up. Their sexual morality didn't add up with what we were doing, with what the church would think is okay. People who their spending habits were not the same. People in our society that are different than us, that we, we were not quite sure how to connect with them. That's where we find Jesus. And he got a lot of stick about it. And Luke 15 was in response to the Pharisees and the, the religious people. And sadly, sadly my experience is in the 10 years I've been in, in Thriving Life, we've had more stick from religious people because of the, the church ministry that we have than we've had from people outside the church. Because whenever you go out and you start to connect and serve and love your community, you will have no issue connecting with them. Because they can't, they can't resist unconditional love they can 't resist generosity they can 't resist people who reflect the heart of God towards them. God is irresistible he 's still irresistible, and they can't, they can't or they can 't ignore that they can 't just walk away from that. but in this story, there were three characters and, and very often when i 've heard this preached on usually. The focus of this story gets put around the Father and the unconditional, relentless, amazing, incredible love of the Father that just welcomes the Son back after all of what the Son had done. The Son gets welcomed, and rightly so. And that's the position of the Father. But I don't want to preach to the converted tonight. I think most of us in this room, if not all of us, accept that that's the heart of the Father. That's why we're here. That's why you're part of this church. That's why you're committed to this journey because you've, encu- you've encountered the Father's love for you. But I want to put it to you that what we take for granted, that we know that is, is so not known out there. It is so not known by the life or the people in the lives that we're trying to reach and touch. Uh, verse 20 says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him talking about the younger brother, and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. That's the love of the father. That's the message that we have, that we know about, that we're convinced of, that has changed our lives. But there's two other characters in this story. There's the younger brother, first and foremost. I believe the younger brother gives us a great picture and a helpful image of who it is that we're trying to reach in our community. You see, verses 18 and 19, as he prepared to approach his father, so the son came to his senses. He, he realized that because this is a story of living in God's kingdom, he was under the protection of his father. He was under the provision of his father. He lived with his father, but he decided that, I don't think that life in all its fullness is here. I think I know where it is. So I'm going to head off and I'm going to go after it. I remember a time in my life, I grew up in, in church, part of church, but I didn't get this tattoo and the other tattoos in church because I thought that I knew where life in all its fullness was and I didn't think it lied here or it lay here. So I headed out and I headed off on that, on that journey as well because the son thought he knew better. But then there came a point as there did in my life, in Luke 18 and 19, says, I will set out and go back to my father. So this is him making a plan. So I'm going to go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. You see, the first part of that plan is, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. That's about confession. That's about realizing my broken state. Here's the biggest issue that I experience and that I think we, are, we experience as churches in our communities nowadays is the second part. Because the second part isn't about confession of sin or realization of sin. It's, it's shame. It's the identity of which we believe that the, the world out there, most of them, believe that they are unworthy of the love of the Father. And that's what the brother, he comes back and he says, okay, I I acknowledge my sin, but I also believe and acknowledge that I'm not worthy. I I am unworthy. My past mistakes have put me in this state of unworthiness. So I, I can't be reinstated back into the family of God, into my position. As Dave said to us, we confess our sins, so that we can live in the freedom of the cross, but when we don't live in the freedom of the cross because we believe we are still this, we're still, that's our identity, the mistakes that we made, the sins that we committed, and that's part of the problem. Shame shadows our homecoming. And as people come, as you connect, as you go out into your community, as people come in touch with Foundation Church, you're going to start to experience uh, people are going to feel like they're not worthy. They're not worthy to be part of that good living crowd or to be in a place with God because they believe that they have disqualified themselves from their worthiness because they think that God is, his love is dependent on their worth. And they believe their past mistakes make them unacceptable. You see when he meets his father, when he actually comes face to face with his father in verse 21, and his father as we read in verse 20, his father throws his arms around him, he kisses him. He shows him this incredible unconditional love. His response is, "Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son." In my experience, I spend way more time as a pastor I, it doesn't i don't have to do a lot of convincing the people about their sin when people come to meet me or talk to me about a difficult something that's going on in their lives i i usually don't have to convince them that they've messed up that they shouldn't have behaved in this way or they shouldn't have done this thing their sin they're usually quite open to accept and acknowledge their sin what i spend years and years doing with people is helping them see their identity in Christ, live in their identity in Christ because of their unworthiness, this idea that they are not worth, they do not have worth, and that they are a sum total of the mistakes that they've made in the past. Most of the people that you're trying to reach, what they currently think of themselves is what they will continue, they will think that that is a fixed state. So they've grown up believing that they're they're worthless, that they'll never be, you'll never be any more than, they've lived in patterns of families that have always been, I'm a loser, I'm powerless, I'm a victim, I can't change any of my circumstances. So this idea of them approaching the Father, coming back to the Father, acknowledging their sin, but coming with an attitude of unworthiness and a, an attitude of shame. So why is this important? Well, as I said, there was a third character in this story, the older brother. And again, if you've heard this story, this is we usually give the older brother a lot of stick because he's he's his heart's all kind of messed up. But verses 28 to 30, I want to read them because here's what I want what I want to present to you tonight is that I believe, and I think this passage shows us, that not only does the younger brother approach the father believing he's unworthy, but the older brother confirms it for him, and he believes exactly the same. The older brother who represents the person who has always lived in God's kingdom, who has always been under the provision, who's currently in the church— if you like. His attitude towards the worthiness of his brother is no different than the younger brothers. And this is why I'm asking Foundation Church, who are the people in this community going to meet when they bump up, they come face to face with Foundation Church? Do you believe any different about their worthiness based upon their lifestyle choices, based upon their current Realities. Do you believe any different about them and their worthiness than they do? Because this can have a huge impact. So in verses 28 to 30, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even give, uh, give me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed a fattened calf for him. You see, the older brother has forgotten both his identity and his younger brother's identity. And he lives from there because the older brother has forgotten that the only reason he's living in the kingdom is because he's a beneficiary of unconditional love and grace. He's not there because he's entitled to it. He's not there because he has earned it. He's there because of the Father's love and care for him. And the older brother has forgotten that, but he has also forgotten his brother's identity as well, to the point that in verse 30, he says, he calls the younger brother, but when this son of yours, he can't even call him when my brother. He identifies him as this son of yours. I don't even want to identify with him because of the things he's done. Now, I know that sounds stark. I know that, that as Christians, most of us would want to think that that's. I'm not going to have that strong attitude against somebody. I would like to think that I would welcome them in and be warming to them. But whenever these, these stories have skin on them, and they have people in front of you, and you get all messed up with your, your theology and, your, and this person in front of you, and it's confusing, and it's hard, and it's messy. Believe you me, it's messy. So what I'm not saying is that this is about changing theology. You guys as a community, you have to decide what do we believe, where do we stand on certain issues and lifestyle choices and all of those things. That's for you guys to figure out as a church. And I think you have spent this year building a strong foundation about who we are as a community of believers. But this is about who are we going to be in relation to the most broken, the most lonely, vulnerable people that are in this area, in the streets, the surrounding streets around us here. Because when I was reading this and, and when I was preaching to our church last summer, um, I was speaking on this passage and it was on the Friday. God, God just dropped this thing into me. So I'm not saying that this is what Jesus was trying to say through this, okay, all I'm doing is, it just was a thought of what would have happened in this story, as you imagine this story, I don't know about you, I grew up, my uh, auntie and uncle have quite wealthy people out in the country, huge house, tons of fields around them and different things, and I grew up, a lot of my younger summers were grew, grew up kind of across the fields, motorbikes, that kind of stuff. So when I, when I read this story, I, kind of, I have this picture of their house with their long driveway and the big house at the top of the driveway and all these, and they out working in the fields and stuff, and that, that helps me picture this. But whatever the picture of this story is, the question that God dropped into my head was, what would have happened if the older brother had have met the younger brother before he got to the father. Which is exactly what happens nine times out of ten when the church are out in their local community. The older brothers, maybe we don't have the heart of the older brother, but the older brothers are out meeting the younger brothers. What would have happened in this story if the younger brother had been intercepted by the older brother? Can you imagine that conversation? What are you you doing back here? Why, Why are you back here? You have no idea the hurt that you caused Dad. And I had to stay here, and I had to sit with him while he was crying, while his heart was broken. And every time we went down into the town, we were humiliated. Dad, people talking about him behind his back, laughing at him. And then we started hearing stories, people running with stories about prostitutes and drink and drugs and absolute humiliation. So don't you dare think you can come back here and just like, just pretend that everything's okay. Because you know what? I, I don't even have any proof that you've stopped all that stuff. How do I know you're not still drinking? How do I know you're not still taking drugs? So you're not welcome here. And the, the thing that that would have done, the younger brother would have completely confirmed for him what he already believed to be true. I have messed this up. There is no way back for me. Yeah, I've, I acknowledge all of what you said is right, because I do admit my sin. But also, you've just confirmed for me that... This journey was pointless. There is no place for me, someone like me back here. And whenever, whenever God challenged me with that, it blew me away. The importance and the, the difference that it makes whenever we have the heart of the father rather than the heart of the, the older brother. And it's so easy for us to get tied up in, But well, hang on. If you're not doing that, or if you're doing that, or I, I don't know whether you can come here while that's still happening, or do you know what I mean? Our, our hearts can so, so easily get tied up in this in this stuff. You see, long before the people from Rugby Avenue and Balfour Avenue and the surrounding area here ever get to be embraced and come back to a place where they want to confess to their their father where they understand that there is a loving father, they're going to meet older brothers from Foundation Church and they're going to read from you and from your behaviour and from how you accept them how you connect with them how warm you are towards them They're going to read whether they're acceptable to the Father or not. And here's the challenge. When they still smell of pig dung and prostitutes, just as he did, that's the state that we're going to meet people in. And I do not say that disrespectfully. I've told you that I was met with pig dung. I was married, so I didn't have a prostitute. But we were... I was met in that state. So this is my story as well as everybody else's. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. Pastor John Burke is a pastor of a church in Austin, Texas, a church I visited a few years ago. Um, he, wrote, he has written a few books, and one of the books that he wrote was called Mud in the Masterpiece. And the title... Of the book is based around an illustration that he uses. He, in his early marriage, his wife and him, uh, were had were part of a ministry in St. Petersburg for like eight years. And during his time there, they visited uh, one of the the art museums. And on one of the walls was a Rembrandt painting, and it was a picture of the Prodigal Son, um, and it's worth millions, hugely valuable painting. And he uses the illustration in the book of imagine if we were to go and we were going to visit the the museum. And as we walked to the museum, we we came around the back and there was a a skip out the back. And as we walked past it, we, we noticed a picture frame poking out of the skip. And curiosity got us the better of us and we went over and had a look and we pulled the picture frame out and the picture frame was this old, ripped, dirty, covered in mud painting. But as we looked at it and tried to work out why it would be in the skip, we started to recognize in amongst all the dirt and all the mess, started to recognize this painting. I've seen this painting somewhere before. And then when we rubbed away some of the mud, we could see the signature of Rembrandt in the bottom. And we realized that this was the damaged, muddy, messy version of this hugely valuable masterpiece that usually hangs in the museum, what would you do? If you had any sense, you would lift that, you would take it, and you would take it to an art restorer, one of the master restorers, and in their job is they spend years fixing the tears, bringing the colours back to what they should be, cleaning it, removing all of the dirt, and the, the illustration—it's not complicated. I'm sure you get it—is that we're the job of the church is to be able to see the masterpiece and not just focus on the mud. And our job is to take the masterpieces and help them get to the master restorer—the person who knows what that painting should look like—the only person. Who can remove that dirt? who can fix those tears? who can bring the vibrant colors back out again of that masterpiece? And the question to the church as a whole is are we going to see the mud or are we going to see the masterpiece? Last Easter not Easter pastor the Easter before, uh, we had a Good Friday communion um, service in our church which we do every year and the uh, place was, was full, and I remember as I turned, I was at the front, and everybody was kind of heading out, and as I turned to walk towards the back of the, the church, I noticed two guys standing, talking, and, uh, and I looked, and those, both those guys I know well, one guy called John, one guy called Davey. and. It was just—it an emotional, amazing picture for me. I used to play football with John when I was younger, and I knew Davy from around the town. Uh, John was led one of the paramilitary organizations, the Loyalist Paramilitary Organizations, in the Ards and Northtown area, and Davy was the commander of the other one. Right? And here they were on Good Friday, both in church arms in, abandoned in worship, two of them standing, having a wee natter at the back of the church on Good Friday night, the night before the, the marching season kicks off and everything goes mad. And I remember just feeling, and I, I feel emotional now about it, I remember feeling just overwhelmed with, just with gratitude that God had given people in our church the ability to see the masterpieces, not the mud. Now, those two masterpieces are still being restored, but I can tell you they are doing incredibly well, and they are looking way, way, way more like the version of, that God painted of them in the first place. And that is just a couple of people out of many that I've seen, and that's why I get excited for the journey that you guys, the place you are at, the position you are at. I don't care how many is in this room. God can do incredible things whenever we can see past the mud and spot the masterpieces and call people to it. But as I said before, mud, as we know, mud's messy. And Foundation Church has got to decide Are we going to be the kind of church that has an unwritten sign at that door that says, if your feet aren't clean, you don't get to walk mud in here. You have to clean it up. You have to get it all off your feet, and then you're welcome to come in here. Or are we going to be the kind of church here that we're okay with a bit of mud on the floor? And I'm okay because when I pick that that masterpiece up on my journey to the restorer, I can guarantee you some of the mud's going to come off it onto my clothes, and it's going to be messy, and I'm going to have to figure out what to do with it. But what will help us be that kind of church is the realization that, because here's what I believe to be true: when I turned up here tonight, there was already muddy footprints on the floor when I walked in because Dave had come in and Marian was here and Jacob was here because we all, none of us are the masterpiece that we were once made and we've all still got rips and we've all still got mud and we've all still got stuff that the master restorer is working at and we're a work in process. You see, both these brothers were covered in mud One of them was very obvious and external. The other's was internal. Ours tends to be more internal. But just to finish my illustration, the place got way muddier whenever these two walked in. And then I walked in after them, and the place was stinking. Because we're all carrying mud. And I'm just so glad that somebody and some people, for all of us, saw the masterpiece enough to pray for us, to spend time for it, with us, to introduce us to a Father, to not be the kind of people that would confirm for us our unworthy state with our Father, but to be the kind of people that would help us and carry us and walk with us while the, the, the Father restores us. My heart for you guys is that you journey with God and and see the incredible, amazing things that Jesus is still doing in the lives of people today. Jesus has not become any less effective at changing lives. So let's become effective at introducing people to Jesus. Get out of the way the best we can. Can I pray for you guys before we finish? Father, I want to thank you for Foundation Church. I want to thank you for the vision and the passion that you've placed in the hearts of primarily Dave and Marion for this church, for this church in this location, in this part of Belfast. And Father, we, we do, I echo what Dave said, and we give you thanks and praise for the other expressions of your church that are in this area but this is foundation church and you uniquely call them to the mission that you've given them and father i would pray that you will give them the blessing and the privilege of being part of a move of god in the lives of the people in this area may they celebrate as people come to know their loving father as people come to know their worth and their value, as people get baptized, as people join the church of God, step into eternity with you forever. Father, that's our heart. But way more than it being our heart, it's your heart. And we just want to align ourselves with you. So, Father, I want to thank you for these guys. I want to ask your richest blessing on them. Father, make them dangerous in this local community, that anybody that would come in contact with the ministry and the mission of Foundation Church will be changed forever. Because when they meet someone from Foundation, they meet a reflection of their heavenly Father who loves them so deeply. So, Father, I want to thank you for them. I want to ask you to bless them in your name. Amen.